Are we on? Okay, good morning. Good morning to you. You guys are doing okay? It's beautiful out there. Do you really want to be in here? <laughs> I can't hear all the comments, so that's probably good. <laughs> I'll just pretend I knew what the answer was. Okay. We are in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, in God's Word, looking at verses 18 through 24 today. If you don't have a Bible, just grab one of those blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you. Turn to page 1022. That'll bring you to the text that we're looking at this morning. Title this message, Brotherly Love. Brotherly Love Brings Assurance. Back in the early 80s, some of you will remember, Tina Turner released a single. It did very well for her. It was called, What's Love Got to Do With It? You remember the song? Are you singing it right now in your head? Some of you younger folks have no idea. You probably, maybe you've heard it because your mom and dad listened to 80s music. I don't know, but 60s music. Wow. Now you're really dating yourself, brother. And she says in that song, what's love? I'm not going to try to sing it, but a secondhand emotion, right? Secondhand emotion or an old-fashioned notion. She's kind of just singing in the song that love is kind of, it reminds me of that other song that was in the 80s, Love Stinks. That was earlier than hers. It was called Love Stinks. It's just, what's love have to do with relationships after all? You know, that's kind of the approach she had. Well, the world is a little confused about love, right? They are misinformed about love. And the reason they're misinformed about love is because their minds have not been informed about love through the Word of God. Through the Word of God. We know love by the Word of God. We know love because God demonstrated His love to us by sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins. And if we were to ask the Apostle John, John, what does love got to do with the Christian life? John would say, Absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. Not only does it have everything to do with the Christian life, it has everything to do with Christianity. In fact, that word love in some form is used 287 times in the New Testament. Did you know that? 287 times in the New Testament. If you add up all of John's letters, which are the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, if you add all the occurrences of love just up in those, it's 116 times of the 287 times John uses that word love. And just in 1st John alone, these five chapters that we're looking at, 46 times John will refer to love. What's love got to do with it? Everything. Everything. You know, I was just thinking about that because we talk about love and it's kind of, you know, I don't know if that somehow men turn their minds off when they hear that word because we think of sometimes like the world does, that ushy-gushy, emotional, sentimental stuff, right? But love is so much more than that. And we see that as we look into the Scripture. So let's look this morning in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18 through 24, just follow along with me as I read from God's Word. The Apostle John writes this, Little children, verse 18, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart 
and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. This morning, if you open up your bulletins, you'll see there in the outline on the left-hand side, we're going to look at three, just three important assurances reserved for Christians who biblically love one another so that we will know the personal benefits the personal benefits of practicing brotherly love. Those three assurances are assurance of salvation from God, assurance of confident access to God, and assurance of an intimate relationship with God. With God. Now let me, again, just bring in the context to kind of bring you up to speed of where we are in 1 John. I read verse 18. Verse 18 in this section, and we included verse 18 in the section from before, but it's, it's a transition verse. It transitions from that section to this section. It's really all kind of one big section, but he's transitioning there. Verse 18, it says, Little children, let us not love in word or in deed, or I'm sorry, in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And that comes at the end of that section, verses 10 through 18, that we've been working through the past two weeks. The past two weeks. In that section, verses 10 through 18, what we learned is that John made it very clear that genuine or authentic Christians are not characterized as hating one another. As hating one another. And, and when we refer to one another, when John refers to one another, in the context it means those in the Christian community. Those in the Christian community. Fellow believers. But rather, Christians are to be characterized, according to John, by loving one another. Okay, so that's what that section really just lays out before us. In fact, let me remind you of a few verses from that section. 1 John 3, 14 through 15. You can let your eyes glance up or you can just listen. John writes this, We know, John and his Christian readers, we know, we can be certain that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That word, that use of brothers and brother, okay, he uses it both ways there in those two verses. The original Greek word, it's in its masculine form there, but it may include both men and women. So when you see it here in this context, you can think fellow believers fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now the kind of brotherly love that John was talking about was not merely sentimental or emotional. Right? That's When we think about love, because of all of the songs about love and because of all the movies about love and because of the way people speak about love, often that is the limitation we place on that word love, it's emotional, it's sentimental. But John is, is saying it's more than that, it is sacrificial. It is sacrificial and it manifests itself 
in actual deeds, deeds, acts of sacrificial love. According to verse 16 of chapter 3, we looked at this last week, John was thinking of love like Jesus' love. Like Jesus' love. A love, beloved, that was seen. It was seen. Not just heard, but seen. Jesus didn't just say, I love you. But they saw His love in action. It was a love that was not just felt, although certainly you can say Christ's love was felt. But it was not just felt, it was seen. It wasn't just emotional, it wasn't just sentimental. It was sacrificial, it was played out in real life. It was manifested, it was made evident, it was declared by His acts of love. One writer said this, I said this last week, it is a love, beloved, that is prepared to meet the needs of others whatever the cost of self-sacrifice. That's the kind of love John is talking about. That's the kind of love Christians are to have for one another. It's not an ushy-gushy type of love. Not a love that you fall in and fall out of. I hear people talk like that. I hear people talk like that in... In counseling situations with their spouse, I, I think I've fallen out of love. I think I, or I, or new two new people who, who meet each other and they say, I think I've fallen in love. It's, it's not that. It's a love that willfully acts, willfully. They make a decision to act, to sacrificially serve others. And not, I might add, because they're worthy of it. Because they're worthy of it. Were we worthy of the love that Jesus demonstrated when He willingly laid Himself upon that cross and took God's wrath? Were we worthy? And yet we get confused because that's the kind of love we are to manifest toward one another. Jesus' kind of love. But we... We hold our love back. It's a, it's a give and take. A you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You show me a little love and maybe I'll release a little love back to you. That's not the kind of love we are to have for one another, brothers and sisters. This love is not calculated that way. This kind of love is a, a divine love. It is a divine love. And in verse 18, now we step into our text here. In verse 18, John is encouraging Christians to express that kind of love for one another in real and meaningful ways. It is the evidence of love in the Christian community, he is saying, should not be limited. This is basically what he's saying. It should not be limited to mere words or kind thoughts or those type of things, but rather our love should be demonstrated in real deeds. Sacrificial deeds done for the benefit of the other. Done for the benefit of their brother and sister in Christ. Are you with me so far? That's the kind of love. This is a divine kind of love. However, We do those deeds sacrificially for the benefit of the other. However, 
John goes on to explain that the expression of this type of love in our life is not without benefits for the one who practices it. It's not without benefits for the one who practices it. And it is these benefits that I want to look at with you this morning. Okay? So we'll start with the first one. The first benefit that comes to us is those who practice this kind of divine love, as we see it manifested in our life, is assurance of salvation from God. Look back at the text with me. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19-20. through 20. There John says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Now before diving further into these two verses, I, I have to tell you something. I ended up this week spending a great deal of time stuck in these two verses. In fact, so much time that I had to finally say enough's enough because the week was progressing and I wouldn't have finished and been ready for Sunday. Why? Why did I get stuck in these verses? Well, these two verses, you may not know this, maybe you do, but they present numerous challenges to Bible translators and Bible teachers. Numerous challenges. I'm not going to share the details with you because that would bore you half to sleep about those difficulties. But because of those difficulties, and if you're curious, they are textual difficulties, grammatical difficulties, and exegetical difficulties, I don't believe, and here's what I want to tell you, because of those difficulties, I don't believe it's possible to know with absolute certainty exactly everything that John intended when he wrote these two verses. Okay? I don't believe it's possible. And I, fellow commentators would say the same thing. They, they'll give you an opinion, they'll give you an idea, but absolute certainty is hard to come by in regard to these two verses. But, there is one thing I believe that is fairly clear, so I want to focus more in on that this morning, okay? I want to focus in more on that this morning. At the beginning of verse 19... John writes, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. Okay, this one I can get. Let's break this statement down. By this. By what? By what? Well, the what or the this most naturally refers to what John previously wrote in verse 18. Remember, verse 18 comes before verse 19. The this is loving indeed and in truth. Loving indeed and in truth. In context then, by this in verse 19 means by practicing genuine acts of sacrificial love towards one another in the Christian community or by a lifestyle characterized as loving your fellow believers in real and meaningful ways. That's the by this. Now look back at verse 19. By this, which is a reference to verse 18. So we've got that figured out. We've identified the this. By this, by loving one another in the Christian community in real and meaningful ways. Look at the verse 19. We shall know. We shall know what? 
we shall know that we are of the truth. We are of the truth is basically just another way for John to say we are of God. We are of God. Or that is to say we belong to God. We belong to God. We're Christians. One writer says this in regard to that statement, we are of the truth. We are of the truth because we are of God. And God's nature is essentially truth or reality in contrast to falsehood. To be of the truth is to be of God. It is to be a Christian. It is to be a child of God. It is to say that we belong to God. To make it even more plain, knowing you are of the truth is equivalent, as I've just said, to being a child of God. It also means that you know that you have passed out of death and into life. It is to know, in the simplest terms, that you are truly saved. Okay? Now look back at verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. And if you're looking at the ESV, you'll see a semicolon there at the end of this statement. And so this is where it starts to get a little dicey in trying to figure out exactly what's going on because that semicolon is placed in a different location depending on your translation. And the semicolon is not in the original words that we look at, the Greek words. It's put there by the translators trying to help you understand the meaning. So they, in the ESV's case, they think that there's maybe a break here, a slight break, and then there's another statement that's independent but connected with this first statement. All right, so, see, I told you, and I can keep going about this. I could keep going on about this, but let's move on. The original word translated reassure, we'll try to break it down, in the ESV is translated, is translated set our hearts at rest in the NIV. Okay? Set our hearts at rest. I think that's a good translation. The word translated reassure our hearts before him, that word reassure is translated set our hearts at rest in the NIV, a different English translation of the Bible. Why do believers' hearts need to be set at rest? Why would they be disturbed? Now look back at verse 20. Look back at verse 20. The first part of verse 20, it says this in your ESV Bible, for whenever our heart condemns us. For whenever our heart condemns us. Now, I told you that there are some serious challenges with this text in translating and interpreting it. So, some Bible translations choose to put the whole sentence together, verse 19, and the first part of verse 20. They remove that semicolon. So, for instance, the New American Standard Bible, another very, very good translation, it reads this way. Verse 19, first part of verse 20. We will know by this that we are of the truth. We've looked at that. We've got that. And will assure our heart before Him in whatever our heart condemns us. Okay, now listen. The general idea then that is drawn from this translation, putting those two sentences together, is that there are things, there are things, although John doesn't define them in this letter, there are things that may cause our heart, or more specifically, not the pumping organ, but 
our minds or our conscience would be a better way to say it. They might cause our conscience to condemn us or cause us to question if we really are of the truth. If we really are saved. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are things that could cause us to question whether or not we really belong to God. What things? One writer says it this way. I like this quote, so I reserved it for you. Doubt, guilt, and failure are never far from any of us. Beloved, is that true? You've been a Christian for any period of time in your life? Does that resonate with you? Do you hear those words and go, yeah, I've had doubt, I've had guilt, and I've had failure. It's never far from any of us. Sometimes our misgivings, which is just another word for doubts, sometimes our misgivings are the result of our own actions or inactions. So the writer is simply saying, sometimes it's because of what we do. So we disobey God. Or we do that which we know we not, should not do. Or it's because of our inactions. We don't do what God has told us to do. Sometimes it is the accuser. Who's that? Satan. Satan. The devil. It is the accuser who seizes our weaknesses and shortcomings and so elevates them that we wonder whether we can really be in the truth. You understand what he's saying? So he takes that shortcoming in your life, he takes that failure in your life, he takes that guilt in your life, and he elevates it to a point in your life where that becomes the all-consuming thing for you. You can't see anything else but that. It overwhelms you, and you begin to wonder, do I really know God? Am I really saved? Now, while the challenging Greek text behind the slightly different translations that I've already shown you this morning make it difficult to be definitive or that just means absolutely certain about this, I think that is likely the idea here behind John's words. I am persuaded. But going back to the main point and more clear point, the evidence of love in our life for one another is proof, hard evidence of our salvation. It is proof that we are of the truth. You understand? It's proof. And if I understand the rest of this verse correctly, it is also the solution or remedy to a troubled or condemned conscience which every Christian has from one time to another in their life. It is an important help to a saved person who might be questioning their salvation. What is an important help to a saved person who might be questioning their salvation? The manifestation of love in their life for one another. That's what John is saying. I believe that's what he's saying. The last part of verse 20 says, God, you can look back there, it says, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Again, it is hard to know for sure 
what John means here. It's hard to know for sure, but I'm persuaded that he's simply saying that even if you and I have doubts at times, and we do, and we will, likely, about our salvation, even if our heart troubles us, God is greater than our hearts. He sees beyond the disturbing doubt and guilt that can paralyze us as Christians. And He recognizes us for who we truly are are his redeemed children who are loved by him and have been implanted with the desire and given the power to love those who are born of him who are born of him he sees beyond all that stuff he is greater our heart may condemn us but god calls us justified reconciled because of jesus christ now let me add this Well, let me ask you a question. Is it necessary for me to assure God that I'm His child? No. I don't need to, or maybe I should say it another way, do I need to assure God that I'm His child? God knows either way. Okay? He knows. He looks beyond all this stuff. He sees right to the core. He knows who are His and He knows who aren't. You can't fool God. I can fool others, I can even deceive myself, but I cannot fool God. God knows everything. That's not the issue here. The real issue here that I believe John is getting at is I need to know that I am of God. I need assurance. I need confidence that I am God's child. I need it. I need it. Without that assurance, beloved... We will flounder around, likely. We will likely flounder around. You know what that means, flounder, right? Isn't there a fish named flounder somewhere? Right, Little Nemo or something. But is this a... What? Little Mermaid? CF. Don't quote Disney movies up here. Okay, so flounder, kind of... I mean, they just lack... They will lack purpose. They will have a hard time getting anywhere. The Christian who lacks assurance may be even drained of any enthusiasm to live for God. Why? I don't even know if I'm saved. All I see is guilt and doubt and fear and condemnation. And in that environment, it is very difficult to be motivated to live for God. To live for God. They can be overcome with depression. Anybody ever experienced depression? You don't have to raise your hand. I know you have. I have. It is. I'm trying to say the word right. Debilitating. You can correct me later if that's wrong. Debilitating. It wipes you out. It takes you down. It zaps you of your strength, of your spiritual strength, of, of everything. It can leave you laid out on a bed. And by the way, those who question their salvation, those who have no assurance... Do you think that they're going to really be excited about leading others to God? I doubt it. If they're questioning their own assurance, they're going to have a hard time telling others about Jesus Christ, the one they're not even sure if they have a relationship with. We need assurance, beloved. John wants his readers to have assurance. He writes it in John chapter five, 1 John chapter 5. 
He talks about them having assurance. I'm writing these things that you may know. That's why I'm writing these things to you, that you may know, that you may know, that you know, that you know, that you may not have any doubt that you are His, that you have eternal life, that you have salvation. Loving one another, get this, beloved, loving one another not only benefits those who receive that, that sacrificial love, it does, it's incredible, right? Isn't that obvious? But maybe this wasn't so obvious. Loving one another also benefits us. Manifesting that love to one another benefits us. Because it is by that love that we are reassured that we are loved by God. That we are loved by God. You know why? Because then we are able to see God's love working in us and through us as we personally witness that love being poured out on others in real ways. Does your heart trouble you about your position with God? Do you lack assurance about your salvation? Beloved, if, and that's an if, if you are truly saved, John doesn't want it to be that way. It need not be that way. That need not be the characteristic of your life, that you are always constantly in a position of questioning, doubting, feeling condemned before God, wondering if you really are of the truth. It need not be that way. He says, let your love manifest itself because by this, you see that happening, by this you will know you will have assurance. And the if is a big if because Sometimes we question our salvation because we aren't saved. So don't, don't cast that away too quickly. Sometimes that's a reality. We look at the Scriptures, and as we begin to look at the Scriptures, we realize, I'm not saved. I don't manifest the reality of being saved in any way. But if you are saved, John is saying, don't let your, your love just be in word and in talk. Show it. Pour it out. And when you do that, You'll know. You'll be assured. Your heart will be reassured when things come against you. Oh no, I know I'm saved because I see God's love being manifested through my life. That brings us to the second one. Assurance of confident access to God. Assurance of confident access to God. Look back at the text. 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and we do what pleases Him. Now remember, the context is still loving one another. That's still the context. John hasn't left that subject yet. He hasn't moved to a different topic. He's still talking about loving one another. So follow the logic with me here, okay? The Christian who practices love for one another will know by the evidence of that love that they are truly of God. And this will reassure their hearts before God even when doubts may arise about that reality. This assurance then gives them confidence to come before God and make their request known to Him for they will be confident of his love for them. One writer put it this way. It's a long quote, but I found it to be helpful in my own understanding. He said this, 
Listen, Christians are called to fellowship with God. But if they are guilt-ridden, that means weighed down with guilt, and conscience-stricken, rather than seeking that fellowship or enjoying it, they will flee the presence of God. They will be unable to claim their position as His children. Not because they're not His children, but they'll have no assurance, no confidence in their hearts that they really are His children. Nor will they dare seek answers to prayer that He alone can provide. On the other hand, those who have His peace in their hearts will have confidence, not only at His appearing, as John talked about earlier, but in the ordinary here and now relationship to the Father, especially as it involves prayer. Believers will stand in His presence naturally as those who are supposed to be there because He has so provided for them. I think that's it. Now, just to be clear, just to make this statement, this confidence before God that John speaks of is not based on a false assumption that we have somehow earned the right to come before God or to declare a hearing with God because I have faithfully loved one another. That's not where the confidence comes from. You know, God, I have a right to come before you because I've been obedient, I've been loving one another. Rather, it comes from the manifestation of love for one another in our life that then assures us that we actually are of God, that we are born of God, that we are His children. It assures me of that. And therefore, as His child, I have a right a privilege to come before my Father in prayer and ask, and ask. I have no fear in coming. It is natural for a child to come to his Father and ask. But i got to know. i got to know I'm his child. And so I believe that's the connection. This manifestation of love in our life reassures us that we are his children that we are saved, and gives us confidence to come before our Father as His child in prayer. Now, I'll comment quickly on verse 22, where it says, whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Ooh, wow, that's a great one, isn't that? So does that mean if I ask God for a Ferrari, I should expect it? Right? It goes something like this. God, I will use that Ferrari to serve you and to love others, I promise. And of course, I have this verse here that I can rip out of its context to prove that whatever I ask of you, certainly I shall receive. Well, we've got to remember that in this same letter, John writes in 1 John 5, same letter, same author. He writes these words in verse 14. This is the confidence, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that is God, that if we ask anything... according to His will. He hears us. And then He says, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, how is that whatever we ask defined? How is it limited? What are the parameters? 
according to his will, then we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Important to remember that. See, that's why I talk about people ripping stuff out of context. See, you can ask God for anything. Yeah, you can. According to his will, he'll hear you. He'll answer. He'll respond. That same idea, asking according to his will, that same idea in 1 John 5, 14, it's being communicated in 1 John 3, just in a slightly different way, in verse 22. Look back at it. I'll show you what I mean. He says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. One writer says this, Obedience, doing what he asks, pleasing him, Obedience is the indispensable condition, not the meritorious cause of answered prayer. What does that mean? It means that God doesn't give us what we ask because we've earned it through keeping His commandments. But rather, He answers the prayers of His obedient children who desire to please Him, those who follow His revealed will, which is found in His Word, the Bible, and live to honor Him. Those are the conditions then that lead to answered prayer because those are the conditions that produce prayer that is not inconsistent with or outside of God's will. You understand? That is what the writer means. Obedience is the indispensable condition, not the meritorious cause of answered prayer. Put it another way, another writer says, Our obedience is the result of the Holy Spirit working in us, teaching us to desire God's will, so that our prayers grow out of this accord or agreement between God's will and ours. Or to say it one more way, to obey His commands is the condition of being heard simply because such obedience is the evidence that our will is in inward harmony with God's. Hopefully saying it multiple ways will help you get the point. I mean, after all, and I've heard this said, and I think it's good to remember, prayer is really about aligning our wills with God's will. That's really what prayer is about. And that is a process as we surrender and obey Him and are in a line with Him and are doing everything that we can to please Him and to obey His revealed will, that our prayers then will be manifested in that same light. You don't switch up. You're not a guy who's seeking to obey God and do what pleases Him, and then your prayers go against that. That doesn't make sense. They're consistent with that. So it is faithful obedience to His commands, like loving one another, that can calm our condemning hearts and assure us of our saving relationship with God and give us the confidence that we need to come before Him in prayer and expect to hear Him respond. Now let me ask you a question. How desperate is our need, how desperate is our need to continually and regularly go to God in prayer? How desperate is our need, beloved? If you don't know, it's desperate. We are a needy People, take God out of the scenario, we crumble. We would crumble. We need God. Sometimes we don't realize how much we need God. We need God. John knows 
his readers need God. John knows his readers need to have confidence with God that they might go to God on a regular and consistent basis. We need him. And how unnecessarily we forfeit the blessings that come from prayer because our doubting or condemned hearts keep us from going to our Heavenly Father. See? We need assurance. We, we, we should not be the ones running from Him. <laughs> we should be the ones continually running to Him. And beloved, we will find a new confidence to boldly come before our Father in prayer when we love one another as God has commanded us to. See? See the connection? Benefits. Benefits to us. Finally, assurance of an intimate relationship with God. Third benefit. Quickly. 1 John 3, 23. Look back at the text in verse 24. John then says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Having spoken about obeying God's commands in verse 22, we just looked at that, John now defines exactly what that means, or what he means by that. Christians must believe in Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God. That's the first one. I mean, that basically means that they have to embrace Jesus for who He really is, for who He claims to be, for who the apostles have said He is, all that He represents, and all that He did, that He died a substitutionary death on the cross for sinners, that He rose again the third day, that He remains at the right hand of the Father. And they must love one another. And, did you see that? This command is two, a two-part. He says, and this is the command. They must believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and, and love one another. Beloved, these two things are tied together. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ must also love one another. The writer says, one writer says, belief and love go together and neither is sufficient without the other. I like how this writer said it. He said, you cannot believe without loving, nor love without believing. Beloved, there is an unbreakable link in the Scriptures between saving faith in Jesus Christ and loving behavior toward other Christians, toward one another. I mean, lots of people say, hey, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus. Okay. Do you love other Christians? Do you really love? The way, the way Jesus loved, do you love other Christians? Oh, I don't know. Uh, okay, then there might be a problem. Because John has tied these things two together. Love other Christians, believe in Jesus Christ. They're linked. John goes on to say in verse 24 that whoever keeps God's commandments, defined for us in verse 23, whoever keeps those commandments, he's defined them, they're the one who abides in God and God in him. The one who trusts in Jesus Christ and, and 
loves other Christians, is the one who can be assured that not only do they abide in God, but that God actually abides in or lives in them. (laughs) That is an incredible reality, people. Think about that with me. God abiding in us. This speaks of a very special and intimate relationship that exists between the true Christian, the authentic Christian, the born-again Christian, and God. A relationship that exists between the human and the divine. God dwells in His people. How do we know? Simple. They love one another. They love one another. Why? Because God who lives in them is love. He is love. John says it this way. We'll get there eventually in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love, he's going to look at it from the other side. Anyone who does not love, and when he says that, if you look at verse 7, he's talking about loving one another. So don't just think love in some general kind of way. He's talking specifically again. Love for one another in the body of Christ. Love within the Christian community. Anyone who claims to be a Christian but who does not love, they do not know God. Why, John? Why would you say that? Because God is love. God is love. And it is by this very fact, that manifestation of love in my life, that I know God Himself dwells within me because it is His love that is being manifested through me to others. God has not only saved us, that's amazing in and of itself, but He abides in us as His people. That is a powerful reality for us to grasp and to be assured of. God is not out there somewhere beyond the edges of space or whatever we might start to think. It's not, it's not like that. Rather, for the true Christian beloved, God is right here in me. Think about that for a moment. We don't have a long-distance relationship with God. We have an intimate relationship the most intimate relationship possible with God. And biblically loving one another confirms that to be the case. That God, very God, abides in us. How much confidence do you think that will give you to walk through this very dark world? I've got God abiding in me. I've got God abiding in me. Now, Here's what I wanted to do at the end of this. I think this is what I want to do. I want to talk to you a little bit about specifics. You know, when we talk about loving one another, I think, yeah, yeah, okay, Jeremy, for the last three weeks, la, 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 love one another, love one another. Are you ever going to shut up about this? I would, but John keeps talking about it, So, and we're going to come back to it in chapter 4, and I told you, the New Testament, filled with love, filled with love. And John, they call him the love apostle, the apostle of love. That's all he wants to talk about. 
Because it, yes, because it is, it is everything in the Christian life, beloved, love. But when we talk about that, you know, I don't know, it just becomes kind of a general idea. Okay, yeah, love one another. Love one another. Well, what does that really look like? Because it, it needs to be manifested in real, practical ways. Can I give you an idea of how it could look like? There are many ways, so this is not, I'm not limiting to this. But our, our motto here, our tagline, our mission statement, our goal, we talked about it several weeks ago, is what? It's on your, it's on your, I don't have one, but it's on your bulletin at the front, at the bottom underneath the logo. What does it say? This is what we want to be about. I don't know what it says, so you're going to have to tell me. It says what? Cross-centered disciples. Making and multiplying cross-centered disciples. So here's what I want. This, beloved, this is my dream. This is my desire, because I believe it's God's desire, that we would be a church characterized by this, marked by this. I know, I'm not an idiot, that not everyone is going to be about this or excited about it. Some people will come and completely ignore it. I get that, and I pray eventually they'll jump on the train. But if 80% of our church was about this, who? Okay, now let me take that. Let me take that and bring it together, okay? Loving one another. We want to make and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. Do you know why? That is a true manifestation of love. I want to see my sister or brother conform to the image of Jesus Christ. I want to see them grow up and mature. In Jesus Christ. I want to see them be completed in Jesus Christ. Why? Because that is the most loving thing I could possibly do. And as someone who is discipling and being discipled, I want to make sure that I'm always thinking that way. How can I take this to somebody else and, and show them this truth that they could benefit from it too? See, we won't do making and multiplying disciples, cross-centered disciples of Jesus Christ. We won't do that if we are not serious about loving one another. It's going to have to, that's the foundation. It is the motivation behind it. Certainly we can talk about it will bring glory to God and all of that. Certainly. But it is motivated by love because making disciples is hard and difficult. See, I think what happens is we think about loving one another, and we think simply in material terms because even John uses that reference. So, for instance, my brother or sister in Christ has a financial need, a material need. They need some food. They need some clothes. They need a car. They need a job. And those things are important, and we need to address those things too. But sometimes we limit it to that. So, I bring them some food. I bring them some clothes. I bring them a car. That's not going to happen. I'm just telling you. That's not going to happen probably. It'd be cool if it did happen. It could happen. God could do it. But anyway, I bring in these things and I meet that need and I love them. Yes, that is love. That is love. That's sacrificial love. Absolutely. But beloved, let's move beyond the physical into the spiritual realm. How much more important is it for a person to have growth in Jesus Christ than to have another meal? we We don't say forget the other meal. We give them the other meal. All I'm saying is, which is more important in the end? that they grow up to be like Christ, that they are matured in Christ, that they begin to look like Christ, that they might tell others about Christ, that they might be rescued from hell, that they might be saved. Which one's more important? 
And here's what happens. Now I'm just, see, no notes. There's no notes here. So you guys are in trouble because now I'm just going to talk to you from the heart. Here's what happens, beloved. Our culture is consumerism. We, we breathe and eat consumerism. So give me, give me, give me. That's what we're taught over and over again. So you go to a restaurant. You say, show me the menu. I want to see what you're going to serve me. And we look at the waiter and the waitress and we say, you better give me good service, right? And we go to a hotel and we go, where's the bellhop? And where's this person? And you better have the towels on the bed, right? Hey, I'm not saying any of that stuff is wrong. I'm just saying that's the culture we live in. That's what we do, right? And we go here and we go there and you better serve me. You better serve me. And then we come to the church. And we say... So, what do you got for me here? Let me see your list of programs. I want to see if there's a program that fits one of my needs. I want to, I want to know how you're going to you know, entertain me. I want to know what you got here. Is the music good enough? Is it up to my par, my level? Does it, does it fit me? Beloved, that is not the question as Christians that we should be asking in church. What do you got for me? We should be coming here and saying, how can I serve someone else? How can I love on someone else? See, if we were all doing that, not only would we have our needs met, but we'd be meeting others' needs. Real needs. And when I talk about making and multiplying cross-centered disciples, we're talking about discipleship. And that's why we will keep pushing until I fall over dead, or you remove me from this pulpit. We will keep pushing this. We will keep emphasizing this. We'll keep talking about it. Because to love one another truly goes beyond physical, beloved. To love one another means, all right, I want to see my brother or sister next to me, behind me, I want to see them grow up in Christ. I want to see them conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Well, Jeremy, I don't even know how to do that. No one's ever discipled me. Okay, then let us disciple you. Let us teach you the things of the Lord. Why? So that you can keep it to yourself, so you can hoard it to yourself, so that you can go, look at me, I'm all filled up, I'm good. No, so that you could grow up in Christ and teach somebody else. Instruct someone else, disciple someone else, love someone else. That's what, we wanna, that's what I want to be about. I know there's at least a few of you out there who want to be about that too. I know it. I'm just hoping the majority of us would be that. When we talk about this loving one another, it's not out there somewhere. It's not some general idea. It's real. It's meaningful. It's specific. And I would apply it in particular to our mission to make and multiply cross-centered disciples that really that is about loving one another. Beloved, we need to be discipled and we need to be making disciples. Why? Because... It's the motto of the church? It's, it's our mission? No. Because we ought to be loving one another. Huh? We ought to be loving one another. And guess what? It's so cool. Loving one another just not only benefits the other person, it benefits us. Because when I begin to manifest that reality in my life, when I begin to sit with people, and, and by the way, I'm just going to throw this out here too, discipling one another, that's when love really steps in. Because when I'm talking about discipling one another, I'm not talking about... Hi, Senia, I love you. See you later next Sunday. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about getting into Senia's life. I'm talking about me and Senia getting to know each other. About me and Senia being transparent with one another. 
Have I said your name too many times, Senior? The lady right over there. We're transparent with one another. Guess what? She's going to find out stuff about me that's not nice. I'm going to find out stuff about her that's not nice. That's the reality. That's the reality. And we're going to rub each other the wrong way. That's going to happen. And we're going to have to love. Yeah? We're going to have to love. Oh, it's a totally different situation. Just come in here Sunday. Hi, hi. Go back. Come back next Sunday. What is that? Beloved, I'm going to tell you right now, that's not loving one another. That's not what John was thinking about. And he certainly wasn't thinking about you know, dropping off a few cans for the homeless. That's not what he was thinking about. He was talking about life on life, pouring our lives into one another, that we might see each other mature into Christ-like disciples. That I might spend time with Senia, pour my life into her, love her, that she might love others. So, let's pray. Father in heaven, I, I long, I long and I pray for uh, that this body would really uh, be about your business. That it would be more than just a gathering on Sundays. It'd be more than some people that want to get together and for a few minutes, but it, it would be about a body of Christ that is committed to Jesus Christ, is following after Jesus Christ, and desires to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, that means they'll have to be disciples. They'll have to be learners. They'll have to be students so that they have something to share they have something to give. Father, I, I would pray that that would be us, that we would be those type of people, that not only are we learning and growing in, in discipleship relationships, but that we're striving because we want to love one another, because we want to obey your commands. We'd be striving to give that knowledge, share that truth, with another person in relationship. Father, that they too might hear this incredible news, they might know the truth of your scriptures, and by it they might grow and be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. What better thing could I want for someone? There is no better thing. I could pray that they would have a good job, I could pray that they would have a nice house. I could pray that they would have clothes on their back. And certainly all those things are important. But what greater thing is there than, than that they would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? <laughs> and Father, you have saved us to participate in that effort. As we love one another, as we, we become involved in each other's lives, as we speak truth, the truth of your word in each other's lives, and then we see that transformation take, take effect. Father, please make Summit Bible Church that kind of church for our good and for your great glory, God. It is in Jesus Christ's holy name, our Savior, our Redeemer, our returning King, that we make these requests to you. Amen.